I don't like to highlight horse racing, but in, this first, but in his first race, he finished dead last. His disappointed owners placed him in a claiming race where anyone could take ownership of him for a fee. Eric and Kay became his trainers, but their story is filled with hard work and tragic loss. Six years earlier, they lost 24 horses in a lightning strike barn fire. But their faith and love for horses, they decided to overcome their loss and heartache. This two-year-old colt was their last attempt to try to simply do the next right thing. The colt's only chance to race in a major event in 2022 was in races limited to three-year-old thoroughbreds. But the day before the Kentucky Derby, with only seconds before the entry deadline, one of the horses in the field was scratched and so the colt was entered into the race of 20 horses. Neither owner nor trainer nor jockey had ever been associated with a horse in the Kentucky Derby. The jockey had never even won a major event. On race morning, the Colts' odds were set at a massive 80 to 1, the second longest odds in Derby history in America's richest horse race. At the halfway point of the race, the colt was 16 horses back from the lead, barely visible from the drone camera above the race. But then he made his move, working his way through the crowded pack, finding narrow openings, improving his position. As they led to the finish line, he moved into fifth, then fourth, then third. Still no one noticed him. Everyone's attention was focused on the battle between the two famous front runners. And then, with only seconds before the finish, he suddenly made his final move, passing between the two front runners. The announcer struggled to even identify him, his voice echoing throughout the famous race course. Rich Strike is coming up on the inside. Oh my goodness, the longest shot has just won the Kentucky Derby. The winner of the 2022 Kentucky Derby was Rich Strike. Ricky, as Eric and Kay like to call him. Friends, hope is a powerful word. And yet for many of us here this morning, we have and feel discounted, overlooked and afraid of starting again. But just being determined to beat the odds doesn't always mean victory and success. There's something to be said about perseverance, faithfulness, commitment and showing up. Something to be said about making the choice to continue, even when the odds are stacked against us. And so if this is you, Christ follower, church attender, single parent, widower, student, struggling couple, worker, business owner, growth group leader, if you're discouraged, lost, embittered, tired, and ready to give it all in, James has something to say about perseverance about suffering, about living wholeheartedly for Jesus. You got your Bible there? See it with me, James chapter 1, verse 2. Can it all join, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Steadfastness is just another word for perseverance. Faithfulness, endurance, commitment, showing up. Even when the odds are stacked against us, when things aren't in our favour, there's something to be said about making the choice to continue. Through the many and various trials we face, 
God brings about our maturity in Christ. You see, the moments when we want out the most are the moments when God wants in. James writes to the overlooked, see it there, chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. James is writing to the diaspora, the scattered, the elect, God's people who now live in exile, living as the people of God in captivity, living for Jesus amongst the nations. And like Peter's letter, the epistle of James is written for people who live like we do, belonging to God in a place where we don't belong, scattered but patiently waiting to be gathered again, not at home, not at rest, but God is with us and at work within us. And this is James, a self-identified servant of God. James knows what it's like to be on the outside, on the outer. He knows what it's like to be rejected. After all, James did all the rejecting. See it there, Mark chapter 3, verse 20, the words on the screen behind me. Then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out and seized him for they were saying he's out of his mind. The little half-brother who rejected Jesus has now become his servant. See it there, James is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. After his resurrection from the dead, Jesus appeared to James specifically. Here's how Paul delivers it in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 5. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are alive, still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's Paul. As an eyewitness then of the risen Lord Jesus, James writes about resurrection living in exile. It is a punchy, practical and direct letter. He doesn't beat around the bush or gild the lily. James gets straight to the point. So let's do that too in verse 2. Count it all join, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James's punchy little epistle begins... And suddenly, James is the guy that you want to punch in the face. I mean, who is this guy? What is it with him? Who looks at suffering and considers it a gift? Who counts trials as triumphant treasure? James does. And already he sounds like the annoying little brother, doesn't he? But James sees what we don't see. While we get lost in the details, James sees the big picture. While we get caught up in our emotions, James keeps his eye on the outcome. We think, at least I did, that suffering is random, that our trials and our difficulties are painfully pointless. But look again there, won't you, at verse 3. Trials and testing produces steadfastness. Our struggles aren't pointless, they are productive Pain and hardship are birthing something new in us. God bringing about the fullness of our faith. God uses difficulties, the difficult moments of our life, to shape our lives to become more like Jesus. When bad things happen to us, 
whatever that is and whatever that looks like, it's not random, it's not for nothing, it's not a conspiracy out to get you. Various trials bring about God's deeper work within us. When bad things happen to you, God isn't punishing you. God doesn't hate you. God uses the everyday things of life, the people, circumstances and events to shape our lives. So when bad things happen, when life takes an unwelcome and an unexpected turn, James says, count it all joy. Consider it pure joy. Consider it a sheer gift, says the message. Consider it an opportunity, says the New Living Translation. Just as God raised Jesus from the dead, so God's now bringing new life to you. When bad things happen to us, when life is hard and a constant struggle, God can feel distant and aloof. But the truth is, he couldn't be any more involved. But you've got to stick with it. Faithfulness, endurance, commitment, showing up. That's what steadfastness means, friends. It's just another word for perseverance. At the first sign of trouble, when it's all too much, too hard and too difficult, we're ready to pack it all in, aren't we? We give in and we give up far too easily. We sacrifice surrender and worship for our own self-preservation and self-protection. We don't meet with God. We prioritise our schedules over our steadfastness. We become undisciplined and unreliable. We stop doing the bare essentials. We bail on our commitments to one another. The relationships that matter most suffer the most. But perseverance must finish its work in us. We need to remain steadfast in Jesus. Not so that we can become perfect, like it says there in the ESV, but so that we can become mature and complete. You see, hard times make us mature in our faith. Trials and tests are times of significant growth. Rejoice, says James. Pain and problems aren't pointless. God is at work in you. And oh boy, hasn't God been at work amongst us lately? But don't despair, friends. Endure. Paul says it this way, Romans 5 verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit he has given to us. Hope is a powerful word, isn't it? If you're still struggling to see what James sees, struggling to see how God is at work in your struggles right now, James says all you've got to do is ask. God generously provides wisdom to the humble. You see, it's time we wised up. Look there, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without, with, not doubt, with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see, the giver of every good and perfect gift, verse 17, loves giving generous gifts to his children. 
Hey, have you ever noticed that whenever we're going through tough times, we become more self-reliant and more self-determined? And instead of asking others for help, instead of accepting the help that others offer us, we withdraw relationally, we pull back and we decline their help. Instead, we white-knuckle with more determination. If that's you, if you do that, and I must confess that I do it too, if you reject offers of help in your struggles because you don't like being exposed or being vulnerable, if you're a person who doesn't ask for directions because that would mean admitting that you were lost, if you're trying to hold it all together when the backside of your world's just fallen out, then you fit the category of needing wisdom. You qualify as someone lacking in wisdom. Rather than white-knuckled self-reliance, James says, ask God for wisdom. When we don't know what's going on for us, we can't see how God's at work, it's important to know how much it is that we don't know. And so to ask the one who knows, who can tell us. But you see, here's the thing with prayer, friends. God is more willing to give than we are in asking. See it there, he's generous, he gives generously, verse 5. It's not like portion servings in an open buffet, God gives generously. He gives it all to those who ask him, verse 5. Wisdom isn't limited to the academically qualified. And he gives, verse uh, verse 5, without pointing out our faults. He's not like your parents who constantly criticise you for all of your mistakes. God gives wisdom when we ask. But what James says next, it's a bit of a shock, isn't it? I mean, it's no small qualification, is it? Ask with faith, ask in faith with no doubting. I doubt that's even possible, don't you? The prayer of faith isn't a bet each way in a two-horse race. It's not two-faced, it's not double-minded, not uncertain, fickle or indecisive. No, the prayer of faith asks God, placing everything in the hope of his provision. Is that how you pray? Boldly asking, expectantly waiting, believing God will do what you've asked him, waiting for his generous gifts. No, we we tend to pray safer prayers than that, don't we? We pray conservative prayers because of our conservative theology. Friends, let's be bolder in our prayers. Let's start asking God to do the impossible. Dare to ask God to be generous. Dare to ask God for his wisdom. Because the life of wisdom is a life that relies on God. Look there, verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The lowly person knows that they need need wisdom. But the rich person is self-reliant and self-sustaining. James has a lot more to say about the rich and how they live without God. But for now, I just want us to notice how things end up for the lowly and for those who are self-reliant. You see, the rich man, 
passes away. He perishes. He disappears in the midst of his pursuits. But notice the lowly and the needy there in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Even when things are tough, even when we can't see what God's doing in us, those who remain steadfast, faithful, enduring, committed and reliable, those who stick at it and stick with it, will not have a fading beauty that perishes, but the crown of life that lasts forever. Friends, hope is a powerful word, isn't it? Steadfastness produces maturity within us, but it must go full term in order to share in his promises. Like the wisdom that God gives us, the crown of life is also a gift that we receive. But in our times of testing and trials, when the pressure is on and it's all too overwhelming, James says, don't be tempted. Look there, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. It's tempting for us to think here that James is talking about something else. But this is about how we respond in hard times. This is about what happens internally when we're dealing with difficult external circumstances. Whenever there's times of trial and testing, there's going to be temptation. Temptation is your constant companion from the cradle to the grave. Temptation is always with us. So don't be surprised by temptation. Instead, let's work hard to see how this all works. Just as suffering has a cycle that leads to life, so sin has a cycle that leads to death. James says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by the deceiver. God doesn't tempt people into sin. Temptation doesn't come from God. Trials and testing lead to maturity, but that's not where temptation leads you, is it? So don't blame God for being tempted. Don't blame God for how you respond. They're our desires that tempt us. They're our desires that lead us astray. And we're going to look at this a little bit closer tonight at 5pm if you're interested. But for now, here's how this works. It's a tale of two births, isn't it? Trials give birth to life. Temptation gives birth to death. When it comes to temptation, sin and death, James uses the language here of the hunt. Like an apex predator hunting its prey. Our own desires, they're luring and coaxing and enticing us away before striking, killing and dragging us out. Our own desires, they work against us. When we want out of the mess that we find ourselves in, when we want anything to distract us, anything to give us a bit of relief, anything to make us feel better about ourselves or the situation, anything to solve our problem. But that's when we get into trouble. These desires, they lead us into temptation. 
the desire for relief from our circumstances becomes stronger for our desire for faithfulness. And when that happens, we surrender to our desires and give in to temptation. Pregnant with desire, we give birth to sin. From the very beginning, sin has always led to death. Genesis 2.16 And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Friends, in the midst of trials and trouble, we need to remember that God is good. When all we see around us is hardship and our own failure, it's easy for us to quickly forget that God is good. But don't be deceived, says James. Look there, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will... Will he, uh, sorry, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It's easy for us to lose sight of it, especially when we've been blindsided by something. But in the thick of trials and temptation, our wholehearted focus needs to be on the goodness of God. If you want to receive the crown of life, steadfastness needs to complete its work within you. Our Father is the Father of heavenly lights, the creator of all things, gives good gifts to his children. God is good. He doesn't change. He gives us new birth. The natural order of things now is sin and death. It's a continuous cycle, isn't it, of sin and sweat and sorrow. But God's good answer to our current death spiral is to create a new one that gives us new life. A new life cycle that defines us as being in Christ. God gives us new birth. See it there through his word. The word in the beginning that created all things is now the word at work within you recreating us to be more like Jesus. Faithfulness, endurance, commitment, showing up, not giving up. That's what steadfastness means.